Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of July 29th through the 31st, 2022. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. Uh, we're moving into August, and upcoming doldrum of major film releases after this month, and some would say even after this coming weekend. Uh, on my side of things, uh, last week I mentioned my dog had a bit of a health scare. Um, thankfully, uh, it seems to have passed that at this point, so you know, all good there. Um, however, for the DC League of Super Pets, uh, was not quite as rosy for those animals. Uh, we're not quite so super opening. Now we'll talk about that in due time, but there are actually a couple of headlines and discussions I think are more interesting to get into. Which I'll put at the top of the show as our top stories. Um, I also have some more movies. I've actually been watching some classic movies, actually. Um, not anything recent, so I'll give a quick review for those at the end of the show as usual. First up, though, let's talk about uh, at San Diego Com- from San Diego Comic-Con. You know, this was a couple weeks ago, but, you know, there's been this growing question over the past, you know, week or a couple of weeks or so that, you know, have we hit too much Marvel, right? I kind of touched on this last week, but, you know, there are 12 projects, movies or TV shows in phases four, five, and six that each will take about a year and a half to go through. Uh, in comparison for phase three, there were 12 movies that took three years to go through um, and all of them in the form of movies. So, you know, in some sense, it feels like there's much more saturation right uh, and the pure number of projects you're getting more projects in a few smaller period of time um and and until you know and and so that that's you know can be a lot of for some people right myself you know the people are like oh it's just one episode a week well you know i mean sir for some people they have the time to watch one episode a week and keep up with it but for other people right who have you know families to take care of um other media they're not just watching marvel they're watching a bunch of other stuff as well um you know, it, it's 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 still it can be a lot, right? And uh, especially for me personally, right? Once I find I'm falling behind on a certain show, I'm not like into a certain show, or I miss a certain show. You know, now that's two episodes I have to catch up on it. You know, to, to be up to date, or three, and it sort of slowly snowballs to the point where like, oh, there's just so much stuff I need to watch that I'm never gonna catch up to. Might as well just just declare bankruptcy and just give up on it, right? Um, until convinced otherwise, you know, I'm personally going to be sticking to just the movies, right? Um, and I'll just miss whatever I miss from the TV shows. Now, in response to a question on the box office subreddit by BariBigBird06, I calculated the total runtime in minutes of MCU projects for Phases 3 and 4. Uh, phase 3 had 11 movies that released over three years from Captain America Civil War in 2016 through Spider-Man Far From Home in 2019. Uh, these totaled 24 hours and, uh, about, and 57 minutes of movies, or about 8 hours and 19 minutes per year. Uh, meanwhile, for Phase 4, we'll have seven movies, which, assuming Black Panthers as long as the first Black Panther movie, um, will be about 13 hours and 50 minutes total. Um, however, while we have fewer total number of movies, uh, we ha- do also have eight TV series. And, you know, assuming Sea-Hulk, which is coming out in September, uh, it will be as long as the shortest other Marvel TV show to date. Um, that will be eight TV, that will be a 24 hours and 16 minutes total uh, for a total of 38 hours and six minutes. Now, Phase 4 started at the beginning of 2021 with WandaVision and will be running until uh, Black Panther 2 at the end of this year. Technically, there's also the Guardians of the Galaxy um, Holiday Sword and I think a, a, Hall- a Halloween Sword as well, but I'm not going to cl- include those for now. Right? I was thinking about like the mainline projects. Um, those are going to be basically, uh, you know, 
in the total of 38 hours and six minutes. Uh, so that would be about 19 hours and three minutes per year over the last two years, which is, again, in comparison to, you know, eight, eight, eight hours and 19 minutes for the movies for phase three, um, you know, is over twice as much uh, to the total number of minutes per year between the phases. So there's definitely a bit of a bloat in the amount of Marvel that we consume each year. Um, now, without rehashing that conversation on whether or not the quality of the TV so makes up for it, right? Like, are they so good, right, that they need to actually be, you know, and, and they're not some stories that can be told in a two-hour story. Maybe they need to be extended out, you know, leaving that conversation aside, it is easy to see why it does kind of feel crammed uh, in the amount of Marvel we're getting, you know, metaphorically stuffed down our throats. But, you know, why is that case? Well, you know, like I had mentioned last week, this is because Disney is competing with other forms of entertainment, not just other streaming services, for your attention and thus your subscription dollars. You know, if you look at 2021, WandaVision was from January through March, Falcon and the Winter Soldier from March through April. Uh, then we got a brief respite in May before June and July were Loki, uh, August through October were What If, and in November through December were Hawkeye. So 11 out of 12 months, there was always something new to watch from Marvel. Uh, looking at 2022, it does at first seem a little bit more spaced out, you know, Moon Knight, March through May, Miss Marvel, June through July, and then Seahawk will be going from August to October, leaving, you know, while we do have the Guardians of the Galaxy special in December, that leaves January, February, and November unaccounted for. Until you remember that Book of Boba Fett is airing in, aired in January and February, and Andor will be running from September through November at least, so that's all 12 months accounted for by the Disney Plus faithful. Uh, if you know, they had stuck to the old release schedule of just movies, right? And then, event like, let's say they released, you know, three or four movies a year, uh, released them, you know, maybe, like, 30 to 45 days afterwards. Um, you'll have, essentially, four months where there is some content on Disney+, Plus if you didn't already go see them in theaters. Um, so, you know, that's only four months as opposed to 12 you're getting monetization from if people subscribe, subscribe and unsubscribe. Uh, what, and probably worse for Disney, right? Like, you know, eight, four movies, eight hours, eight hours of content, you know, you could just unsubscribe for 11 months and then you know during the holidays subscribe for one month uh, and, or maybe even have one person subscribe for a month and everyone just watch the movie together during the holidays right um it's a lot harder to get everyone to sit down and binge 19 hours of content in one go versus trying to keep up throughout the year um, and, of course, paying that subscription fee. So, yeah, of course, that does leave, you know, consumers like me who get kind of lazy about keeping up with things, somewhat intimidated when my, and by, my, by my backlog. But, you know, I guess with Chapek's prerogative to prioritize Disney Plus subscription money more than anything, at least you can understand why they're pushing for so much Disney Plus TV show content. You know, I would say, in my opinion, right, uh, if I had to give my take on what I would want, I would say, you know, three to four movies is pretty good. And if you really did want to have TV series, rather than have, I think these, one thing that I find that's making it harder to keep up with these TV series is that, you know, there's six, there's six, maybe nine episodes. And, you know, the six episode series are maybe 45 to 50, even 60 minutes in some cases long, right? And, you know, it's harder for me to to put aside an hour a week to, to watch something straight through versus, you know, 20 minutes I can do on my lunch break, right? And so maybe you can watch it over multiple lunch breaks, but that kind of like ruins the experience in my opinion, right? So, you know, have maybe, you know, I'm kind of excited for the upcoming Daredevil Born Again series, if only because it's looking like it's going to be 18 episodes, which I imagine will be 30 minutes or even 20 minutes long, right? So, you know, self-contained stories. And part of it is that, okay, you want to tell one central story of, you know, say Falcon and the Winter Soldier or WandaVision, right? And that's fine, right? Maybe, again, maybe it does, in some for some people think it, need, it needs to be longer than the, uh, the, 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 um, it needs to be longer than the uh, you know two hour long movie feature film mo movie format. So you split that out into six hours worth over a couple of episodes, right? Maybe that's fine, 
but I found watching, and this is my perspective watching anime, right? In that the shows that I really come back to are those where there's like, you know, or even Avatar The Last Airbender from a Western comparison. There is a central plot, but there are like opportunities for these side tangents and opportunity for, you know, just exploring the world a little bit more. It doesn't have to be hyper-focused on this one story, right? Um, maybe that's my personal take. Maybe people like the prestige Western TV that is like a focused miniseries of six episodes, six to ten episodes or so. Um, and maybe that's, just not, that, maybe that's just my taste, but I would be interested in maybe, again, maybe three movies a year, right? One in like the uh, April-May period, one in like the June-July period, Period, uh, and then one in maybe like the October November period, and if you want to have maybe one or two TV series, right? Even if you have the same amount of content, just have it instead of having multiple short series, have two longer running series that run over six months, right? Um, that run for you know. Um, you know, 20 some odd episodes basically, right? Um, like a sitcom type thing. That might be more interesting, at least for me, to keep up with. So um, I don't know. that, And and, my, and just to see a number of, of different shows to keep up with would make me be different. But who knows? You know, that, that that's my take on it. So um, now, in any case, in the flip side of this question of is there too much content uh, is the tale of another superhero universe. And, you know, shout out to the Oscars Death Race subreddit. Uh, the user Logan there kind of uh, <laughs> clued me into this one. But um, news broke uh, the day that I write this episode that the upcoming Batgirl movie starring Leslie Grace as Batgirl, J.K. Simmons returning as Commissioner Gordon, Brendan Fraser as Firef- as the as the villain Firefly, and Michael Keaton as Batman, um, and directed by the team who saw Batgirl boys for life um that's not going to be released right now notably you know that ha- this happens all the time right like there are films and in, in in that people are planning out and then it just ends up never materializing for one reason or another what's different about this one is that batgirl has been completely sought already right suiting took place from november of last year through march of this year and so you know the budget of allegedly was $90 million already spent on production that will just simply be a sunk cost at this point, right? Now, a few weeks ago, we kind of had reported that there were rumors that, you know, because it had a big, it might it might get a big screen release instead of going straight to HBO Max like it was initially planned. You know, after all, we know that new CEO of Warner Bros. Discovery, David Zaslav, is on a mission to cut extraneous costs for the company, and part of that is keeping budgets of HBO Max original films below $30 million. Um, this is why, you know, uh, projects like... Um, no, the Wonder Twins ended up getting canceled. Um, and, you know, with the, with the budget on this one, $90 million already, the assumption would be that, you know, they would put this out uh, theatrically, um, especially since post-production was pretty much all it had left. However, the news today is that not only will it not be getting an HBO Max release, it won't even get the theatrical release to try and recoup some of the costs. Now, this is kind of unheard of in Hollywood, right? A film that's already completely sought, just not getting released. Most of these were just, at the very least, putting on put it on streaming so it's out there at least, right? Try to get some money from maybe subscribers or something. Um, I mean, there is, you know, the famous case of the 1994 Fantastic Four fan- film that was sought but never released um, so that the studio could keep the rights to the franchise. But, you know, that was intensely sought on a very low budget of just over a million dollars with the express purpose of never being released, just to, you know, work with this technicality to keep the rights to the Fantastic Four. Um, and this also isn't like, you know, an, an also in, in Hollywood, you know, there's the TV pilot system, right, for t- television shows where the first episode of a potential TV series are sought, you know, they're cast, they're produced, edited together, um, and then sopped around to different studios to see if they'll produce the rest of the season. Um, those usually will cost maybe a couple of million at most. And so, you know, for, for you know, these development teams, they, they, they put it together and, you know, if they end up not getting picked up, that's kind of normal, right? Um, but something that's been sought and completed for $90 million is kind of crazy. 
So let's look at this, right? First off, breakdown for the finance, the hypothetical financial side of things here. Uh, looking online, it seems that the post-production of most films are about 15% of the final cost of the film. So, you know, if you take the 90 million so far, spent so far as the other 85%, another 15% would put it at 105 million or so total budget. Okay, uh, going off of the 2.5x rule of thumb that a film needs to make 2.5x its production budget uh, in order to remake its marketing costs, um, 105 million production budget would need about 260 million or so to be break even. So you'd be spending about another 150 million or so from this point in time just for the film to break even. Uh, the most comparable film in terms of revenue, I think, from DC would be Birds of Prey, which granted did come out right before the pandemic, six weeks ahead, um, ended up making 200 million on about an 88 million production budget or so, uh, maybe a little bit sort of break even, um, but you know, uh, you know, and, and again, came out right before the pandemic, but another DC film, Sazam, the year before, made 97% of its domestic gross about six weeks before, uh, Although after six weeks after its release, so honestly was not missing too much uh, from from here. Maybe another three percent higher, right? So let's just call it two hundred million. Now, assuming that maybe Batgirl has a bit of a better reception than Ben Berger of Prey is able to get to maybe two fifty million or so, that's still sort of the break even point that they would need to make here. So you send an extra one hundred fifty million to fall sort to to basically lose ten million. Um, you basically, if you're David Saslov, would think, hey, I might as well just think of the ninety million as a sunk cost. This was something from the prior uh, regime, at, you know, led by Jason Keeler and whoever else. Um, and, you know, we'll just eat that cost and, you know, maybe you have it as a tax write-off. And instead of and, and instead of throwing uh, more money after money we've already spent, that we're never going to get back at this point. You know, let me let me just keep keep these costs down. So again, like I mentioned, there is the argument, hey, why not just finish the film, you know, another $15 million or so, and then you know, just drop it on HBO Max like it was originally intended to, and don't have too much marketing fanfare to keep those those costs down. And it'll be a nice little gift to subscribers, you know, something for the DC fans, um, uh, and maybe even make back a little bit from subscriber retention. Now, that brings me, I think, to my second point here, right? I think DC has a, and I think everyone knows DC has a perception problem. If we look back real quick at Marvel, right? While I may think they are releasing way too much content, um, and the past maybe couple of movies in Phase Four haven't been to everyone's liking, so, you know, Kevin Feige has and a lot uh, has for a lot of people basically earned himself a lot of trust uh, to basically experiment and do different things that may not fit for everyone um, just because people have gotten used to the idea that over the last decade, Marvel is going to be quality, right? You're going to have really good stuff out there. Um, and maybe that helps the perception that, hey, we can try a little bit of a weird thing. Maybe it's not for me, but I can still see how it's a good, it's good even if it's not for me. Um, and so, yeah, maybe Marvel makes good stuff, even though there's too much of it. Uh, on the flip side, the DCEU not only has not been releasing a lot of, of stuff, they have been what they have been releasing generally has not been that well received. Um, only three of their films have had a 90% plus Rotten Tomatoes score from critics or 80% plus from audiences. Uh, these are the first Wonder Woman movie, uh, Sazam 1, and The Suicide Squad from James Gunn. Uh, in particular with that last one, while, yes, The Suicide Squad was hampered by being a day-and-date release film and also having Delta variants to combat, to contend with, um, it's without a question that the very poor reception of the first Suicide Squad definitely played a factor in people just not giving it a chance, uh, the, the, the sequel a chance, because it was so closely tied to the you know poorly reviewed uh, first movie, um, despite the, the second one being one of the best films in the DCEU. Now, while I th which I think I think this hints to Zaslav's uh, where he's coming from with Batgirl, right? 
Um, this and you know many other HBO Max original films were given Greenland, other than Jason Keillor's reign as CEO, when getting content, any content, no matter how much it costs, onto HBO Max was the imperative. And now we've gotten out of the shadow of Zack Snyder for the most part. It cannot be uh, argued that the DCEU is not in a, is not in the. It can't be argued that, that they are not in the position that uh, that they are a, they are not reputationally in a shaky position. Uh, they are just to make something clear. They are ha- have a reputation problem. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Zaslav, if he could, could just reboot the entire darn thing. Maybe keep Jason Momoa. Maybe keep Gal Gadot. And maybe the Sazam people. Um, you know. Uh, which, you know, those, you know, uh, Suzanne is basically self-isolated from Justice League anyway, um, and then just, you know, reboot the whole thing. Um, if the next few DC films are anything less than spectacular to rebuild the image of the universe, it'll just compound this reputation image and make it even harder for future DC films to earn a profit, no matter how good they are as standalone films, as evidenced by the suicide su- situation. Um, now, the quoted reason for Batgirl not being given the release is that it didn't match the standards of a big theatrical spectacle that DC is aiming for for their theatrical films. And that kind of makes sense, right? If you look at other DC films, their budgets are in the $200 million range. Heck, the Flash film reportedly has a budget of $300 million. Um, so, you know, it, it's it, no matter how awesome, you know, Michael Keaton and Brendan Fraser will be in the film, it will probably look comparably cheap to these other films and, you know, not add to that, rep- not help with that situational, in, um, that reputational situation they're in. So, you know, in sort, DC, I think, is has a strategy where they are probably being more reluctant to put stuff out there until the 100% sir is going to do well, um, at least until they can figure out what to do with their universe. Um, which brings me to the last point, uh, and this was a bit tinfoil conspiracy theory, but stick with me here. So one of the big sticking points in this film was that Michael Keaton would be reprising his role as Batman as opposed to the DCEU's current uh, Batman man Ben Affleck. Now, this was announced uh, by DC that Michael Keaton will be showing up in the DCEU Flash film, um, which adapts the multiversal story of Flashpoint, where multiple versions of characters meet each other. In this case, Michael Keaton is Batman. Now, we do know, however, also that Ezra Miller is complete toxic trash that is making it extremely difficult for DCU to proceed with and market this film. Uh, the tinfoil hat here theory here is that The Flash is basically going to be canceled. Again, they've already shot all of The Flash at this point. Um, I think it shot earlier this year. But, you know, unlike, say, Aquaman 2, where the equally toxic Amber Heard could easily just be edited out um you know, minimized or even even completely removed, you can't really do that with the main character of Ezra Miller. You're going to have to completely resuit it, uh, take Natara or not. Um, now, you know, the DC lineup was delayed this year, right? Aquaman and Flash got pushed back to next year, as did Black Adam to later this year, because, you know, there's a backlog of visual effects stuff going on in the studio, in the VFX houses right now. And so there's a real likelihood that the VFX for the Flash, frankly, hasn't even started at this point. Um, you know, obviously Aquaman is coming first after previously being after the flash and so they were focusing on their on uh, aquaman's uh, special effects at this point so there's another bit of news to this controversy it looks like ben affleck will be reprising his role as batman for aquaman 2 now before again the flash was supposed to come out before aquaman 2 uh before being swapped out in the shuffle um so you know if affleck is showing up in aquaman 2 presumably michael keaton if he was if it was in the original order would have taken that spot as a batman um you know, uh, so it stands to reason that, you know, uh, if he was going to appear in Aquaman 2, um, they are basically now doing resuits to swap in Ben Affleck since that multiverse crossover will not have happened. And so there's no reason for Michael Keaton to be in the films. Sir, it could just be chronology, right? You know, 
America Chavez was supposed to be part of Spider-Man No Way Home until Doctor Strange 2 got moved back around. But this also fits with the theory that DC is planning on just not releasing The Flash. That would be even more insane than Batman that they just don't release a $200 million or $300 million production budget film at this point. Um, you know, but you know, if they're not going to be releasing The Flash, then that means they're not going to have Michael Keaton in the universe anymore, right? And presumably, if Batman isn't going to have a substantial role in the uh, in what they sought for, um, what they sought for uh, uh, Batgirl, you know, they would basically do even more research, it would be even more expensive, right? Um, and you know, again, this is all theory at this point, right? But hey, it makes a lot of sense for DCs who clearly doesn't know what they're doing, they need someone like Kevin Feige to figure things out. Um, and yeah, I mean, like you can reshoot, you can reshoot stuff with uh, with with Michael with with uh, Mike, with Ben Affleck for the Aquaman. You can't really reshoot uh, all of the scenes uh, with Michael Keaton for the Batgirl, right? Um, so you know. And, and by the way, the fact that they need someone like Kevin Feige is really the reason why Marvel, despite what some people may think, is never going to be let go from Marvel because they definitely don't want them to compete against DC. Uh, anyway, back to this, right? Again, I think the in-sword Flash is basically not – and my theory is the Flash is not going to get released. Um, and as a result, uh, Michael Keenan is never going to be in the universe, which is part of the reason why they're not going to be moving forward with uh, Batgirl here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know. You know, it, it, that's that's kind of crazy. We'll see how it ends up. I'm probably wrong, but it, it's fun to, to speculate about. Um, in any case, you know, one last bit on, on Batgirl. If they do end up, uh, you know, writing off Batgirl as a $90 million loss, that means that basically legally they will never be allowed to release that film in a form that makes money for them. So this will forever be lost media, much like the Just Snyder cut of Justice League that, you know, even more so than the Snyder cut of Justice League that at least got an HBO Max only release. So... Um, on Thursday, we're going to be getting a earnings call from uh, Warner Bros. Discovery. Um, so, you know, there may be even more details about this or the rest of their upcoming strategy. So definitely pay attention to that. Okay, 20 minutes in, let's go ahead and look at this week's numbers. Uh, in first place, again, going back to DC, we have the DC, uh, DC League of Super Pets opening to $23 million in 4,314 theaters for a per theater average of 5,332. Uh, globally, it opened another $18 million, so, you know, about, uh, call it $41 million for its opening weekend. Now, that's a pretty big disappointment, right? Box Office Post had it opening between $35, $45 million domestic this weekend. So, what went wrong? I think part of it goes back to what we were talking about the DC, just having a not great reputation problem. So the critic score on Rotten Tomatoes is 71, audience score is 89, and had a cinema score of A minus, right? And you know, but between the minions being kind of the go-to animated film right now and the talking animal craze of Secret Life of Pets behind us, as evidenced by uh, Paws of Fury, Legend of Hank, um, this one just didn't seem appealing to all that many people, I think. I mean, when your biggest advertisement is that, hey, The Rock and Kevin Hart are doing voice acting here, um, doesn't exactly scream inherent quality of the film. Which, you know, side note, I haven't seen it yet. I uh, don't plan on seeing it, but apparently... Uh, the Rock plays not only Superman's dog Crypto here, but also voices Black Adam, who he plays in live action, as well as Black Adam's dog. So, yeah, this is definitely uh, the, the Dwayne The Rock Johnson putting his fingerprints all over the DC universe, and we just live in it. In any case, with a $90 million budget for DC League of Super Pets, the break-even point would be $225 million worldwide, which is, uh, I mean, not entirely impossible, right? Like, past Warner Animation Group films, um, you know, Lego Movies had 468 for the first one and 310 for Lego Batman, but, you know, those opened to 69 and $53 million respectively. Um, you know, this one's more in line with Smallfoot from 2018 or Storks from 2016, which I even forgot those films existed, and those only made up making about 213 and $183 million respectively. 
effectively. So, you know, okay reviews, no no real competition until what? I want to say Puss in Boots later this year in December. Um, you know, maybe a 3.5x multiplier is possible, which will get it to 80 million domestic. Call it 40% domestic, 60% international, maybe 200 million. So, yeah, I mean, another point of comparison is the Secret Life of Pets movie opened as 46 million. This is half that, and had a three, and that one had a 3.4x multiplier. So, not a great weekend for this movie at all. Uh, in second place, Nope dropped 56%, 58%, sorry, in its first weekend, a uh, second weekend. Um, it's a bit of a steeper drop, uh, you know, ending at about 18.5 million for the weekend in 3,807 theaters for a per theater average of 4,883, um, and a running total domestically of $80.6 million. At this point, it looked like it'll end up maybe in the 120 million domestic range, maybe 200 million worldwide, enough for a decent profit at least off of the 168 million production budget, though not near the success of his first of Jordan Peele's first two films. Um, third place goes to Thor Love and Thunder in its fourth weekend, dropping 42% to 13.1 million in 3,650 theaters, losing about 720 theaters uh, for 301 million domestic total uh, running so far. Um, overseas has made another 360 million for about 661 million worldwide. This one's looking more and more like it'll exactly match what Ragnarok made for uh, its first release, um, not including uh, Russia or China and now Malaysia due to LGBTQ themes getting the film banned over there. So, yeah, again. I repeat, this is not a disaster everyone thought it would be. It just is not growing uh, versus what it was last year. Um, it's, you know, call it a single, right? Not a home run. Uh, fourth place went to Minions Rise of Gru, uh, dropping 39% in Weekend 5 for $10.9 million in 3,579 theaters, per theater average of 3,063, running a domestic total of $320 million, $391 million worldwide, uh, puts it at three seven eleven million worldwide, um, crossing that seven hundred million mark. Again, pacing ahead of the first Minion movie, and if anything, uh, the lead has grown between the two. So a billion dollars is still very much in play here. Finally, in fifth place, that goes to Top Gun Maverick, hanging in there, 18% drop in 3,008 theaters for a total domestic of 8.4 million and a pre-theater average of 27.95. Good to get the top 10 film, uh, second through 10th weekends so far. Uh, running domestic total is 650 million, worldwide 1.3 million. Um, at this point, it's about 2 million away from overtaking Jurassic World on the domestic chart um, and 9 million from taking Pit Titanic to be Paramount's largest release ever. Um, overseas, it's made about $10 million away or so from overtaking The Last Jedi uh, for number 14 on the all-time chart. Um, it looks like also, did, not this weekend, but next weekend, uh, they'll be doing another push, putting it back uh, onto premium large formats like IMAX and also having some bonus footage. So, you know, maybe I'll try to go catch it in the IMAX, seeing it for the third time, and see if it gets to $700 million domestic, which would be insane. Um, outside of the top five, you know, where the Quadats thing, Elvis and Black Phone had held well in their third, sixth, and sixth weeks respectively. 27%, 13%, and 29% drops. Uh, Elvis in particular is now the second highest grossing musical biopic of all time, surpassing straight out of the Compton $200 million worldwide, though of course far behind Bohemian Rhapsody's uh, crazy run. Um, Jurassic World Dominion is currently sitting at $941 million worldwide, just eked past Batman to be the number three film of the year by about $500,000. If it makes another $13 million or so worldwide, it'll be end up surpassing Doctor Strange for the number two uh, film worldwide. 
Uh, number 10 this week was a new opener, Vengeance, from Focus Films, uh, directed and starring BJ Novak. It made $1.7 million in 998 theaters for a per average of $17.59. And then outside of the top 10, Pause the Fury dropped like a stone, uh, or I guess bone, uh, losing 1,314 theaters uh, in its uh, fourth weekend, down to only 2,167, making less than 80k in its third, sorry, in its third weekend, not fourth. Um, ouch. Uh, meanwhile, Everything Everywhere All at Once officially uh, got up to $100 million worldwide, and all that was helped by the re-release domestically this week, uh, going up another 1320 theaters, up to 1490 making uh, $671,000 this weekend, weekend 19. Um, yeah, it's the first film from A24 to hit this $100 million mark, so congrats to them. Anyway, overall total box office this week was about $97.7 million. Notably, with June done, we can say that uh, July was the first month since December 2019 to hit $1 billion uh, domestically, making $1.13 billion for the month. Uh, July 2021 was $582 million, while July 2019 was $1.28 billion. So definitely on the way to recovery. Um, and 2019 was insane, having uh, Lion King, Far From Home, and Toy Story 4 all in that month. Um, now, in any case, this coming week we have a bunch of stuff which I want to talk, which I'll mention more quickly, and one I want to go in depth on. Uh, Bullet Train from Sony Pictures is set to open. Uh, it stars Brad Pitt. This action film is expected by to uh, by box office foes to make thirty to forty million dollars opening weekend. Reviews right now are kind of mediocre from Rotten Tomatoes, maybe in like the mid sixties or so, but still, it should be some fun, mindless action regardless. Uh, next up, we have Easter Sunday, but I'll put a pin in that and come back to talk about it later. I have a lot to say about this one. Uh, we also have A24 doing a limited release of their black comedy slasher film Bodies, 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 which debuted at Sundance. No estimates for this. Um, and then over on streaming, we have Apple TV+, Plus, a new animated film from Skydance Animation, the first produced by John Lasseter called Luck, uh, voiced by Broadway star Evan Blizzada, as well as Scottish uh, star Simon Pegg. And then also on streaming, this time on Hulu, we have the next entry in the Predator franchise called Prey. Uh, this one, by all accounts, seems to be really well done and hopefully is a step in the right direction for this franchise after some uh, not so solidly reviewed uh, other films. Anyway, to Easter Sunday, I've seen a lot of people underestimating this film, in my opinion. Box Office Pros has it at 8 to $13 million, and then some people on Box Office, the subreddit, is saying it'll open as low as $5 million. Now... Admittedly, I am biased, you know, this is after all a film by the comedian Jokoi about his, as a love letter to the Filipino community, um, and I am Filipino-American myself, so I see a lot of myself in this film. But, you know, there were other reasons for me to be optimistic and think it will open as high as $20 million this weekend. You know, first off, Jokoi is not some complete nobody comedian, right? He has two Comedy Central specials and then three Netflix specials, plus a fourth later this year, um, which is actually how Steven Spielberg, one of the co-producers on this film through Amblin, Amblin Pictures, uh, discovered him and wanted to make a, a film about him. Um, so, you know, he has a built-in fan base, and, you know, he's been going on tour for most of this year, uh, to, and, you know, for, you know, doing comedy stuff, doing shows, um, and part of doing the show, he runs the trailers for this movie, and, you know, has a QR code uh, where people can buy tickets in advance, and apparently Amblin, this is their earliest time they started selling tickets, about six months in advance or so. Um, now his comedy shows have about 15k people in attendance, as about one in three interact with the QR code, which is pretty good activation rate, frankly speaking. Um, you know, that all being said, despite his ties to Netflix, right, much like the author of Crazy Rich Asians, um, you know, he also opted, instead of putting it on Netflix, to put this in the big screen so that Filipino and Filipino-Americans can see themselves on there. 
Now, secondly, in addition to Spielberg co-producing this film, we also have uh, Dan Lin as a producer who is known for a lot of pretty successful films, right? At Warner Brothers, he worked on uh, Sherlock Holmes, the Lego movies, It, Godzilla vs. Kong, and he also worked for Disney uh, producing the Aladdin live action. So uh, this film is in good hands production-wise. Uh, third, the director, Jay Sandrosekar, you know, he doesn't have a lot of credits to his name, um, but he did work on the Dukes of Hazzard movie, which, while not the best received, still made about $109 million worldwide on a $53 million production budget and apparently the budget here is only 17 million or so so even if this doesn't make a lot it's still i think going to be profitable but you know going to point four you know i think that for me the biggest sign and again maybe this is the social media bubble thing but i've seen a lot of chatter parts of social media uh, in the asian american and filipino american circles um, particularly with the community organization gold house uh, where people are organizing buyouts, theater buyouts, uh, much like they did for Crazy Rich Asians or The Farewell or Shang-Chi, all of who had really great box office numbers, more than people would expect for them. Now, notably, Filipinos are the third most populous group of Asian Americans in the United States, about 4 million or so here and about another 100, and then Filipinos all over the world in 100 different countries, right? So even if half the Filipinos, which, you know, in my personal circle, again, anecdotal, but I know people who never go see movies, but because this is a Filipino movie, they will definitely, make, they've been making plans for months now to go see Easter Sunday, right? Um, it's one of the things we talk about, like, hey, have you seen the trailer for this yet? Um, so, you know, if, if half the Filipinos make it, that's two million, say, $10 movie tickets, right? That's $20 million over this film's lifetime alone. What more if they bring Filipino friends or non-Filipino friends? And what more if they go ahead and do repeat viewings? Now, all of this to say is I think one could, this one could open as high as $20 million. Um, it's the first real PG-13 comedy we've had since The Lost City back in April, which I think also opened about $20 million or so. Um, I guess you could count Bob's Burger, but I don't really count that since that's based on the existing IP. Um, and we don't have another... Uh, we don't have another... Uh, PG-13 comedy for months, right? Um, other comedy films that released in, in August outside the franchise films like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy or Suicide Squad include The Hitman's Bodyguard in 2017, which made $21 million, R-rated comedy Good Boy making $21 million in 2018 opening weekend, and then Free Guy last year making $28 million for its opening weekend. All of these ended up having at least 3.5x legs, um, same as The Lost City, um, so that would put a $20 million opening for, for Easter Sunday to maybe $70 million total domestic. Add in that, you know, with 75% domestics, 25% international, maybe $93, $95 million worldwide. Again, this is off of a presumed $17 million production budget. That's pretty solid. Now, of course, you can't forget Crazy Rich Asians back in 2018. That opened to $26 million over the three-day weekend, $35 over the five days, and it's going on, it went on a crazy 6.5x run. Am I being extra optimistic for Easter Sunday? Absolutely. I'm fully aware I may be eating my words this kind of time next week. But still, a guy can dream. And it's not as though I don't have any historical precedent for comedies and or diverse films in August uh, doing well when people underestimate them. Um, obviously, Bullet Train will be taking some of this audience away. But at the same time, honestly, getting to see a majority Filipino lead cast from a, from a, a film that's released by a major studio on the big screen, that's already a win in and of itself for me. Anyway, let's look at the big story. Looking at internationally, you know, the big story is still China, right? Everyone is looking to see, well, everyone's looking to see if uh, they're going to do something about Pelosi in Taiwan. Other people are going to the movie theaters. Uh, this weekend, the box office recovered with $130 million for opening for the sci-fi comedy Moon Man, making up 90% of the total market for the weekend, good for the third highest weekend of the year and the highest non-holiday weekend in China this year. Reviews are pretty good, about 9.4 on Maoyan. Um, so yeah, this one's definitely uh, have some legs, hopefully, 
for them. Um, Detective versus Sleuths made came in second place, 3.5 million for 98.8 million total to date. Lighting Up the Stars made 3.4 million for 245 million total to date. Then there were two other animated films making less than 2 million each, uh, rounding out the top five. The top Western film was actually a My Little Pony film from 2020, 2021, making about $800,000. Jurassic World 3, in its eighth weekend, made $512,000 for a running total of about $156 million or so. And then The Lost City, which opened this weekend in China, uh, had a terrible opening, less than $250,000 total, uh, coming in at number 10. Uh, Year-to-date, China has made $3.09 billion at the box office, about 33% uh, uh, the number at this point in time last year. Anyway, beyond the numbers, uh, aside from what we're already talking about with Marvel and DC, some other news, you know, in addition to Batgirl getting canceled, uh, Warner announced that they are selling an animated uh, Scooby-Doo movie, Holiday Haunt, the sequel to the uh, ill-fated 2020 movie Scoob. This one only had a budget of $40 million, but apparently I think it was already complete. So again, not really sure why they ended up canceling this one again, unless it's more cost. I also saw like rumors that like they're going to be folding HBO Max or the HBO brand into Discovery and like moving to more unscripted content which would be really weird, but we'll see what happens on Thursday's call. Um, anyway, speaking of haunted movies, uh, <laughs> Scooby-Doo haunt, Holiday Haunt, uh, Disney added Jared Leto and Jamie Lee Curtis to their March-releasing uh, Haunted Mansion movie. Uh, meanwhile, the Daniels, you know, the directing team behind Everything Everywhere All at Once, just signed a five-year exclusive deal with Universal, which is props to them from getting there, right? Uh, given how much trust Universal has put into their auteurs, think you know Chris Nolan, think Jordan Peele, I can't wait to see what these two end up cooking with a bigger studio. Heck, you know, I'd love to see them maybe collaborate with Jordan Peel at some point. Anyway, speaking of auteurs, it looks like Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese will never rest. Uh, after the Flowers of the Killer of the Flower Moon, uh, their upcoming Oscar film probably coming out next year. Um, you know, it looks like they're working on another project with Apple uh, called uh, The Wager, which is a naval survival story. Um, this one's now this next this next item's a little bit dull, but still relevant, right? It looks like there's a there was a lawsuit between Paramount and the Insurer for the Mission Impossible movies over you know production delays due to the COVID pandemic. Um, as I know, and uh, you know, uh, and so that settlement, you know, I, I'm it's hard to say what the impact will be, but we'll, I'm curious to see if we'll see more settlements like these for other uh, studios due to you know the uh, the the whole situation with COVID, you know, mostly being gone, but you know still needing to have to take precautions. Anyway, the last bit of news is that, again, also low-key, but the former chief creative officer of Disney, Alan Horn, uh, recently joined Warner Brothers Discovery as a senior advisor, right? Uh, now, that, however, how that pans out, we'll see, but this is a bit of a homecoming for Horn, who served as COO of Warner from 12, for 12 years, leading the Harry Potter and Dark Knight series. He was pushed out in 2013, uh, which is why he landed up at Disney, but, you know, hopefully he can help Warner figure their shit out. Uh, in any case, as noted at the top of the show, I ended up watching a couple of older movies this weekend, which I know a lot of people will be like, oh my god, I feel really old when you call that an older movie. But uh, I ended up watching a 2004's, uh, uh, the, was it 2004? But early 2000s movie, A Cinderella Story, starring Hilary Duff, and then the classic Lindsay Lohan movie, Mean Girls. Yes, this was my first time seeing Mean Girls. Um, I won't go into too much detail, but obviously, I overall, I enjoyed these films. I think Cinderella Story for Hilary Duff was very much of its time with the fashion and music, but it's also one of the better adaptations of Cinderella I've seen out there. Uh, in particular, Regina King stood out as the, um, the fairy godmother equivalent. She was 
uh, Seth's Kiss, uh, three out of five. I mean, as far as Mean Girls go, I mean, it is so ingrained in pop culture at this point. It was really fascinating more than anything else to see where some of these quotable moment, moments came from and in what context, right? And heck, there were some moments I knew of as quotes but didn't realize they were from Mean Girls, which is kind of crazy. Now, as far as the whole story goes, maybe it's not quite as tightly constructed as other movies, so even like the Cinderella story. But, I mean, the, 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 it does a similar, again, capture the vibe of being a teenager in the 2000s, even a bit better than Cinderella's story, if a bit more exaggerated as well, at least in my experience. Um, and of course, the comedy moments, you could always tell, were kind of more absurd uh, from Tina Fey and Amy Poehler as the writing team, like everyone acting like animals or the bus gang. Um, gag was a, was a delight. Also, Kevin G is absolutely a G. Um, overall, I gave this one a 4 out of 5. I mean, it's lasted through the ages for a reason. And with that, that's a wrap for this episode. See my deals for what I should cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review at the very least. Tell a friend any of that helps. Uh, numbers in this show come from dnumbers.com. Intro and outro music from Kevin MacLeod at incompetentalfamusic.io. Links to those in the show notes. Editing production by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch. And remember, our watch goes on. Mm-hmm.